Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Is it just me, or does it seem like everything? And I'm talking about all things that are being done these days are the worst things ever. Like, you read the news and you think, that's the worst thing ever. And then you read something else and think, that's the worst thing ever. There's an old saying, when you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And somehow that seems to have been summarized as, plan to fail. And the mouth breathers in charge said, oh, yup, yeah, plan to fail, oh, yeah, okay. On today's episode, we're going to virtue fly off into the sunset, or possibly a mountain, and then we'll watch as the powers that be use the reality triangle horribly wrong. And finally, since God got to create man in his image, it's only fair we get to create church in ours. So assume the crash position, completely ignore reality, and pray to whatever nondescript deity you so choose, because that feeling of weightlessness, that means this thing is going down. Here we go! Good afternoon, passengers. This is your captain speaking. First, I'd like to welcome everyone on Diversity Air, Flight 123. Uh, we are currently cruising at an altitude of 33,000 feet at an airspeed of 400 miles per hour. I identify as a two-spirit furry, person of color, pronouns they, and who's a good boy that's attracted to men and shiny objects. Uh, the time is 1.25 p.m., the weather looks good, and with the tailwind on our side, we're expecting to land in London approximately 15 minutes ahead of schedule. I wasn't even close to the tops in my class of pilots, but I checked a box, so here I am. Well, the weather in London is clear and sunny, with a high of 75 degrees for this afternoon. If the weather cooperates, we should get a great view of the city as we descend. Your co-pilot today is a mixed Asian and Native American woman with partial blindness and an anger management problem, pronouns they, and none your business. The cabin crew will be coming around shortly to offer you a light snack, a beverage, and a severe and public dressing down if you dare assume their gender. Uh, let me encourage you at this time to check their pronoun pins closely. Rather than an in-flight movie, today we will be showing non-stop back-to-back episodes of The View that will begin shortly. I'll talk to you again before we reach our destination, and if I need to go walkies, one of our flight attendants will grab my leash and lead me to the restroom of my choice. Until then, sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the flight, and again... We thank you for choosing Diversity Air. No, don't go anywhere. You're in the right place. How many flights have you been on and heard nearly that same announcement? Now, if you're like my mom, the answer is none, as she'll be dipped as she'll fly anywhere. You're not going to get her in a jet-powered metal tube and sling her across the sky. Hi, Mom. Love you. For the rest of us, we've heard announcements along the same general outline, but uh, that one might have had a few little extra things built in. Now, that was kind of funny, maybe a little weird, but how long before that is the announcement? Because as we've been told for quite some time now, those things are the most important things about you. 
what you look like, how you identify, <laughs> unless you're a white male, in which case you can go take a big jump out of a small plane with no parachute or or maybe one of those parachutes that has like, you know, like the camping equipment in it or the anvil or something, you know, something like that. Found on finance.yahoo.com headline, United's new pilot school readies its first class for a more inclusive cockpit. Now, call me crazy, but what I would like for my cockpit to include is all of the little dials and buzzers and knobs and gauges, all of those things working. I'd like it to include any charts or maps and a fully functioning radio. I, I'd, I'd like it to include a minimum of two of the best pilots money can buy. I'm, I'm talking about pilots that can land a 747 on an aircraft carrier or, or that can land a plan safely with only one wing. That That's what I want my cockpit to include. I have a feeling that Yahoo and United and I have different definitions for inclusive, unfortunately. So last year, United apparently opened a flight school, the first by a major U.S. airline, and it was opened with a promise that they were going to, quote, open new pathways, particularly for underrepresented groups of aspiring pilots. A spokesman, they literally use that inflammatory language in the article. Here, let me clean this up. A spokesperson, no, that's still not right. Better yet, a person who speaks, because as we all know, the person needs to come before the job as the person is what counts. So the person that speaks, allegedly identifying as a male, I, oh, this is, okay, too hard, forget it. So Charles Hobart, a United spokesman, said, quote, through the academy, United Airlines hopes to continue to increase diversity in its flight decks and realistically represent the communities that airlines serve. The article goes into the limiting financial burden of becoming a pilot, which could be up to $100,000 to get your commercial license. The academy is working with partners to provide scholarships and with Sally May, you know, government student loans that are apparently crippling people with debt that we, the taxpayers, are going to wind up being on the hook for. Because apparently nobody in the kid's life had the brains to tell their little angel that maybe they're making a stupid decision. Eh, but the academy is working to make finances, you know, more attainable. They're also working with, quote, the Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals, Sisters of the Skies, Latino Pilots Association, and Professional Asian Pilots Association to help identify and steer highly qualified and diverse candidates to the Academy. Their first class in December of 2021 exceeded their hopes of being 50% diverse, hitting 80% either women or people of color. And as they've added classes and students, they're still hanging out in the high 70 percentage range. Chuckles Hobart, you know, the spokesman, went on to say, quote, Traditionally, pilots come from the military or a legacy connection. When you look at the history of commercial aviation and airline pilots, they tend to skew towards a particular demographic, the white male. Our commitment to training is still about recruiting from the deepest pool possible from exceptional and qualified candidates by looking elsewhere for talent while upholding our high standards. We know we're going to be an even stronger airline. Interlaced throughout the article is an anecdotal story about 38-year-old Ricky Foster. Now, look, I'm not a biology major. In fact, nearly all I learned about biology I learned in kindergarten. Cop. Boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. 
But using my best powers of discernment, using context clues like the picture they included and the pronouns they wrote, Ricky Foster appears to be a woman of color. She has been a flight attendant for a decade and, quote, the idea of becoming a pilot never crossed Foster's mind, at least up until a year ago. She was immediately taken aback at the thought of being in the cockpit. But as she got into class, this idea of being a pilot got stuck, quote, like a love bug in her brain. Can you be cleared to fly if you have an insect infestation in your brain? I'm asking for a friend of color. When she was told about this school, she said, quote, you mean there's an actual company, a big company that is not afraid, that is not shying away, that is not backing down, that's not doing a one hour seminar that's voluntary about diversity and inclusion. They're actually pursuing this. To me, that was really attractive and long overdue. The class boasts a wide range of non-male and or non-white and or non-straight, at least as much as possible, pilot wannabes. As Ms. Foster said, quote, my class looked like what they spoke about. We had men, women, gay, straight, black, Hispanic, Asian, we had everybody. Which makes me wonder, am I black, Hispanic, or Asian? Because I feel as if I'd be classified as part of everybody, but I didn't see how I've generally been described in her recounting of the demographics of the class. Huh. She went on to say, quote, I know that United has been diversifying their flight deck for a long time. I don't have specific numbers, but I've been in the industry for a while, and based on observation, most of the black pilots I see are from United, so I could tell United has been working on it. Well, I see no other reason to verify that claim of most black pilots made by a single person that works for the company and was included in the academy by the company that's saying they're doing what she is saying that they're doing. I'm a little curious why she only included black pilots, though. So what have we got here? Well, in a word, more than anything else, we've got racism. But not just racism against whitey, which which it absolutely is. This is also racism geared toward every non-white ethnicity out there as well. Let me explain. See, what I said I wanted in the cockpit of the plane I fly in was accurate. I want everything functional, and I want the two best pilots to ever have graced the heavens. Never once have I said, well, that guy's black, so obviously we're going to fall out of the sky. Or, a woman? Seriously? Or, thank the maker, two white breads up front, this plane can do no wrong. No, I've been on a plane with a woman pilot that landed and just about knocked the fillings out of my teeth. I've been on a plane with a man piloting that I was pretty sure was going to stall us on takeoff and drop us out of the sky. Longer story, but I'm not being dramatic. I literally, it had to have been close. I really don't care who's up there, as long as he or she or whatever stupid made-up pronoun it wants to use is the best of the best. So... The racism geared towards whites, specifically white males, so I guess that's racially sexist, is obvious when the spokesman, Chuck, made his little comment about how we used to get most of our pilots from the military, but they were whites and men. You can practically hear him throwing up a little in his mouth right there. That's the easy part of the racist sandwich. 
let's get as many whiteys out of the game as possible. They want it to look like the communities they serve, eh, just not the white communities. The more subtle racism and sexism is the fact that they're pushing to get diverse pilots. They're specifically working that direction, partnering for that purpose, focused on that end. In other words, non-whites and non-males are by definition too stupid and too talentless to become pilots unless they're given special treatment and consideration. I know that they deny that, as all institutions and businesses and governmental offices do, but that's the reality. That's what they think. I have no problem with ethnic-based or color-based groups and organizations. I have no problem with private groups setting up specific scholarships for specific colors or genders of people. I do have a problem with the double standard, the hypocrisy, and the further denigration of the groups they're purporting to help, however. Rather than trying to shove the square peg of fixing the disparity into the hole of everything possible at later stages of life, like college and career, what if we went to the root cause of the problem? How about the public school systems? How about the communities? How about the families? How about rather than telling blacks, Asians, Hispanics, homosexuals, women, etc. that they're oppressed and repressed, and de facto telling them that they're too stupid to make anything of their lives unless someone steps in and helps the poor colored boy out. How about we address the roots of the real problems? The black community keeps voting in the very people that had them in the fields two centuries ago, and those same people are still enslaving them today. Only, they're enslaving them to a life of low expectations, crime, governmental handouts, and constant messaging that they're just hopeless and helpless. I mean, these poor individuals are even too stupid to figure out how to get an ID or navigate the interwebs, let alone know how to use one of those newfangled computerized tabulation devices. There are some fantastic diverse leaders out there trying to open the eyes of their demographic, but they're fighting the government machine that's basically buying the allegiance, buying the votes with just enough to keep these people firmly in chains while making them feel like they're not shackled to the masters they keep electing. Now, I've covered this before, so at least for this review, I don't want to go back over all this. But in short, we all came from two people, narrowed back down through two other people and their sons and daughters-in-law. All of this in around 6,000 years. We may look different, but do we really? I mean, no, we, we really don't. We have different colors, different features, different sizes, and we all basically look the same. And we can procreate, meaning we're all the exact same species. The idea that we're comprised of different races is in itself racist and is a byproduct of anti-science, anti-God, humanist, evil, wrong, and stupid theory of evolution. But again, we don't address the root cause of the problem. We address the symptoms but leave the underlying illness festering. Just like the primarily black community literally voting in those that are doing everything they can to keep them enslaved, while being told how oppressed they are, literally by their oppressors, never addressing the root cause, only constant, minimal treatment of the symptoms, this is exactly what we're doing with the issues of diversity and inclusion. The problem doesn't magically appear in college or on the job. It's being indoctrinated, ingrained into our children from Disney or Nick Jr. through elementary school and on up. 
Everything they're bombarded with is telling them that they're either the oppressor or the oppressed. That if they look different, they are different. That they shouldn't like the other one because the other one doesn't like them. While at the same time being told that they're not supposed to think the way they're being programmed to think. This is the wisdom of the world, which is nothing but absolute foolishness. How many of these issues could be solved if we stopped the constant messaging, got rid of the stupid anti-science religion of evolution, and started just being people, humans? You know, it's funny. I'm a white boy, grew up in northern Wisconsin, where we didn't see a lot of blacks. We had one black kid in my grade. That's it. I moved from Wisconsin after college to Alabama for my first big boy job, my career job. One thing Alabama has a lot more of, it's black people. I literally didn't know how to act or react. Do I make eye contact? Do I not? Will they think of me as the enemy? How do I interact with these people? Now, would you believe blacks are people too? Just like me. I was actually thinking about this the other day. I don't remember why, but I was thinking about how far my mindset has progressed and changed since my time growing up. At this point, I see the color of people, but I don't see the color of people. I see people. And I see weird, good, bad, and funny in all colors, all ethnicities of people, including those of which comprise me. But if I'm out at the store, I couldn't tell you how many of a specific color were at that store. It'd be a 50-50 shot if I could remember if the cashier was white or black or something else. My thinking is not the racially charged, agenda-driven, message-centric humanist thinking that we're being driven to think. We're all image bearers of God. Some are lost, some are saved, some are moving toward their day of salvation, some never will. But we're all people. Personally, I don't think we have enough time before God comes back and Jesus gathers all that the Father has given him to himself. But if given enough time, enough generations, I could see the entire population merging into one basic color with maybe some slight variation of shading. A nice light brown color. Not red or yellow, black or white, just a general shade of brown. In the short term, at least in the U.S., we'll never see those that hold the largest levers of power do anything to bring colors, ethnicities, or people in general together. It's too lucrative in many ways to keep us at odds with each other. So it's up to us, you and me. We need to recognize ethnicity and appreciate color differences but we are to actually see each other as one of two races, saved or unsaved. And that's literally all that matters at the end of the day. And that distinction has no race, no color. It has no ethnicity. You're either saved or you're not. This is how God sees humanity, his child or not his child. And if God doesn't care about race, color, creed, background, wealth, power, then isn't that how we should strive to be as well? As an engineer, I like myself a good plan. I'm pretty structured. I like straight lines, square corners, spreadsheets, and organized data. I mean, don't get me wrong, I have no problem with spontaneity, as long as it's adequately planned and scheduled well in advance. My kid could tell you about some of the spring break trips that we've taken. I had the week planned out, hotels booked, Tickets bought in advance, every day planned. I mean, we actually did have a good time. I mean, we really did, I promise. We got to see and do a lot of stuff. I just happened to cringe at the idea of, let's drive until we're tired, then stop and see if there's something to do tomorrow. If that's your thing, well, eh, I either want to say uh, more power to you, 
Or God help you. I'm not sure which. Now, I know that not all engineers are like me, which I either want to say I'm happy for them or, come on, get it together. But I'd feel comfortable saying a good number of them are, and as we engineer our respective engineering things, I think I'd be just as comfortable saying that something that drives us crazy is when the accounting guys or the safety guys or the management guys decide they need to have input into our thing. Not only does that slow down the process, it typically adds unneeded complexity, time, and a degree of randomness that no engineer wants or needs. What? You want it to cost less? Sure, I'll just design it with cheap garbage parts. What, you don't want someone to get their hand cut off? Well, tell them to keep their hand out of there. What, you want it complete six months faster than what we agreed to? All right, then I guess you're just going to kind of get what you get. Now, early on in my engineering life, I was introduced to something called the reality triangle. There was one desired outcome for each point on the triangle. Fast, right, and cheap. The reality of this triangle is that you can only pick two, but you need to sacrifice the other one. So if you want it fast and cheap, it won't be right. If you want it fast and right, it's going to cost you. If you want it cheap and right, it's going to take some time. Unfortunately, when the wrong people get their fingers into the mix, reality goes out the window. In fact, when the really wrong people give their input, many times they don't even care about getting all three or even two of the points. They just have a single focus. Case in point, let's talk about electric cars, shall we? It appears that the sole desire by the loony left is to have these things up and running fast. Cheap is never a concern. They'll just print or steal a tax more in order to pay whatever price is demanded of them to get their pet project done. They certainly don't care about getting things right. I mean, pop quiz. What's the last thing you can think of where you said, man, the government sure did nail that one? We used to say that the only thing the federal government does better than private business is run the military. And some people would say the interstate highways or the postal service may be going to space, but uh, I'm not, not even going to give you partial credit for any of those answers anymore. But looking at the current state of our military, talking about having all environmentally friendly equipment and saying that climate change is our biggest battle training accidents, missing money, women in combat roles, and the garbage theories of CRT, anti-racism, and the woke culture being shoved down the throats of our troops, the feds have shown that they have no idea how to run a military anymore either. Time to privatize that, I think, as well. But in their infinite wisdom, the federal overlords have decided that they need to make electric cars happen because we only have 10 years until certain doom. Again! Like 10 years ago, and, and 10 years before that, and 10 years before that. So the current goal is to have 50% of all cars sold in the U.S. electric by 2030. In one of my past episodes, I spoke about the insanity in thinking that our electric grid and the network of charging stations will be anywhere even remotely close to being able to handle the massively increased load. So I'm not going to cover that here again. But I've recently had a, you could call it a revelation, that I've essentially had tunnel vision as to the extraordinary level of stupidity regarding electrifying that large of a portion of our vehicles. I subconsciously started my past critiques at the point where the cars are already built and sitting on the lot ready to be sold. Now besides the computer chip shortage as of late, 
I didn't even stop to consider the manufacture and disposal of the major component in these vehicles, the batteries. Well, that is until I ran across an article from ARSTechnica.com, headline, Lithium Costs a Lot of Money, So Why Aren't We Recycling Lithium Batteries? And then three days later, an article from Fortune via Yahoo Finance headline, a top lithium expert agrees with Elon Musk that there's not enough of the crucial metal to meet booming demand. (laughs) Did you know that batteries (laughs) need to be made? And to do that, you need the proper materials and resources. I mean, who knew? I mean, I guess I did, but that's not something I generally think about because batteries... They come from the store. They come in packages of either not enough or too many, and they cost way too much. I mean, if you want them to last for any length of time. Plus, you know, that they have drumming bunnies, and those are something. So starting with the second article first, lithium isn't the only material needed to make lithium-ion batteries. It is the key, at least for now, with any readily available, even close to realistic battery technology. As car companies ramp up to meet the demand, and when I say demand, I'm talking about the demands of our dear leader, not actual consumer demand, as that's tepid at best, with a very shaky repeat customer base. Joe Laurie, or as he's called Mr. Lithium, said recently, quote, In the next two years, even though there will be significant growth in supply, it will be less than demand, so the gap will just continue to grow. The article states that lithium prices have surged 438% from last year, and usage of the metal has quadrupled over the last decade. Unfortunately, the process to obtain lithium is more than just the sweet, beautiful, environmentally safe mines we see so many pictures of. (laughs) Just kidding. Those things are unbelievably damaging and not in the least bit eco-friendly, but but those happen in poor countries, you know, for the most part. So, uh, yeah, who cares, right? Once you destroy Mother Earth with those unsightly hellscapes they call mines, then there are one of three ways to process what you dig up in order to get the sweet, sweet lithium. You can do something called mining and acid leaching, which, that sounds wonderful, that converts your findings to a lithium sulfate solution that is then converted into what we need for our batteries by using an electrochemical process. Eco-friendly. You can also use a brine and evaporation ponds, where after the pond evaporates, I I guess into our atmosphere, the lithium carbonate is left behind to just scoop into battery sacks or, or something. I'm not sure how that works. There's a third method that uses a saline solution that in conjunction with, I'm assuming, whatever electrical source, it causes the lithium ions to stick to a bead of some sort, which is then washed with some you know, hydrochloric acid, and then you get lithium chloride with some impurities. Now, look, I could have quoted the exact process for any of these, but you and I both know that that wouldn't have helped us any more than me rambling my way through that. Doesn't matter. Bottom line, the planet loves us because at least we don't have that nasty oil derrick on the ground. And pipes. Gaia has spoken. She likes brine evaporation and acid washing and electrochemical processes way, way more. So a lithium mine and refining, according to Sir Lithium, can take up to 10 years to get ramped up. So we're told what we're going to produce and purchase, but we don't have the capacity to sustain that. And to make it more fun, the U.S. currently produces less than 2% of the world's lithium, to which I say good, with most of the mines in South America and Australia. Oh, 
And one other little thing. China controls most of the global supply chain, so, so that's good. Now, Elon Musk recently raised prices of his cars, which he got slammed for, but that was in direct response to the lithium prices. He said that there is plenty of lithium in the earth, and I don't know, maybe there is, but the extraction process is very slow and needs to be sped up. And yeah, if electric everythings are going to be pushed everywhere, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of probably need to hurry along there. But don't worry. There are some other metals that are key as well, like nickel and cobalt, manganese and aluminum. Don't worry about those. I mean, now well, Russia is one of the top producers of nickel in the world, but what could ever threaten that supply? And back in 2016, J.B. Strobel, the chief technical officer of Tesla, who incidentally was born about a month after me, but could probably buy and sell me many times over, so thanks for making me feel bad about that little factoid, uh, he said that he wasn't as worried about the lithium supply back then. He was more worried about the cobalt supply, since that came from the Congo, almost exclusively. And the Congo isn't usually one of those countries you think of when you're asked to list the super stable countries of the world. So with all this uncertainty, and knowing that at least Tesla batteries are only warrantied for eight years, although some have gone much longer, this makes you believe that about every 10 years, you'll need a new battery, which even today costs close to the price of a decent used car. And this is not to mention all the new batteries that will need to be produced. So why don't we recycle and recondition these suckers? Well, despite what our first article says, there is some recycling being done. Tesla is at least attempting to recycle, recondition, reuse, or reallocate their batteries, depending on the remaining usefulness of the used battery sled. That said, the article's author cites a study done earlier this year saying that less than 1% of the batteries are being recycled in the U.S. and E.U., which compares to 99% of the lead-acid batteries, you know, like your normal car battery. Now, Tesla claims they recycle 60% of the components from their spent batteries. I don't know how that figures into the 1% being claimed in this study, but I also don't care enough to dig into that. Of course, recycling these batteries isn't as quick, easy, and straightforward as other types of recyclables, so this usually results in large stockpiles of dead batteries awaiting recycling. And you can't get them in the soil, and you can't get them too near heat, and you definitely can't landfill these things, so they stack up awaiting recycling. And moving from Tesla to General Motors and their fire-prone electric vehicles, the, the Volt and the Bolt, they use repair and recycle resources and just ship the batteries over to them to figure out what to do with them. One such place is in Oklahoma, and they work to repair batteries, but if they can't be fixed, they stack them up so that they can slowly recycle them, either themselves or send them out. As of the end of 2021, they said that they had hundreds of dead batteries on shelves going up 30 feet in height. And with the latest Bolt recall, they're gearing up to stockpile many, many more. Now tell me how safe you'd feel walking through that warehouse, even with the massive fire suppression systems that they have in place. As for why recycling isn't done quicker, or why it isn't more readily available, well because this isn't your copper top AA battery. These are complex, dangerous, and toxic batteries. One method is to use very high heat to just incinerate the entire thing. Of course, that's very, very energy intensive. You'd probably need two windmills to power that. From the ashes, some of the useful materials can be collected, but the recovery is limited and, um, and also toxic fumes. Another method, 
is kind of along the same lines, but instead of incinerating them, we shred them, which I'll be honest, I want to see that. Of course, that isn't overly safe. And then you have the process of culling through the usable materials and disposing properly of the rest of the toxic junk. And that's labor intensive. Finally, a third and much less popular method is to literally disassemble the batteries piece by piece. Recycle what you can, recondition whatever else you can, dispose of the rest. But this is the most labor-intensive, and these things aren't the safest to be working on. From dangerously high voltage to fire risks to toxic chemicals, hey, you know, look, if that's your calling, good on you. Have at it. So, as I stated in the intro, the governments of some of the countries we'd call the world powers have decided for us that we must go all-electric and make a massive step toward that in less than eight years. They don't care about the cost to them, or to you, or to me, or to the manufacturers, because most of them have no idea what it means to actually work for and earn money. They won't care if things are done right until after it's done and things go wrong, at which point they'll call the heads of companies into some sort of congressional witch trial to figuratively burn them at the stake for publicity's sake, because, you know, these companies did exactly what was demanded of them, as best they could, with the illogical and unrealistic expectations given to them. The cold, hard reality of electric cars is that uh, we ain't ready for them. And the single most reason we aren't ready for them is because the technology isn't there yet. But, as at least the U.S. government likes to do, they don't really care. They believe that if they write enough laws and throw enough money at something, surely it'll work. Sometimes they get away with it. Most of the time they don't. And they won't this time. To meet the demand set up by the government in all of their wisdom, the supply must be greatly increased. To greatly increase the supply costs money. That cost is passed on to the consumer, causing the cost of electric vehicles to continue to climb, which means the average person will not be able to afford them, which will make the demand for regular cars go higher, which will cause supply issues there, kind of like what we're seeing today. Have you driven past a car lot lately? That will then drive demand for the used car market, which will tax that supply, driving used car prices up, like we're seeing today, which will push people into repairing their cars, which will tax the parts markets, which will cause the parts to cost more and become more scarce. Ask any mechanic. They'll tell you how hard it is to find parts right now. So what's the end game of all this? Is our government literally this stupid? I mean, yeah, sure, the politicians mostly are, but they're not the ones pushing this. Their handlers are pushing this. You know, they're overlords. But if I can reason this out logically, so can their handlers, which means they've got a bigger goal in mind. You ever see China? Tightly packed cities, live and work in the same skyscraper, public transport. Don't you love public transport? But (laughs) wear your flipping mask, right? Because those, those will stop you from getting sick while you're packed in like sardines. Personally, and and I'm just fine with being wrong on this, this looks to me like a play to use the concept of natural attrition to eliminate most of the personal vehicles over time. Not just gas, but all personal vehicles. And of course, that will exert more control over the population. Look again at China with their social credit scores. If you're a bad person, you won't be getting on the public transport. Sorry. But if you thank the leader that morning as you're supposed to, then you'll stay in good standing. 
The United States was founded with one purpose in mind, freedom. Specifically, originally, religious freedom, but overall, freedom. The open road, the American automobile, exploring, that is a symbol of American freedom. We literally, even now, have the ability to spend a not unreasonable amount of money and travel anywhere we want in a large country, passing from state to state as we please. Now, there are some rules and laws that we're expected to follow, but for the most part, we're on our own. In a very real sense, the freedoms that we still enjoy today, although being curtailed, are as a direct result of biblical principles. The Bill of Rights, and specifically the Constitution, were drafted with large parallels to the freedoms found in the Bible as image bearers of God. Although not all will be saved, in fact, likely very few will be saved, all are granted error. Breeze, the rain, the sun, laughter, tears, food, enjoyment, family, friends, love, and so much more. And yes, I I am aware that due to the ravages of sin, there are people that are never able to experience all of these. But as the founder stated, we have certain inalienable rights, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These were very broad-spectrum rights, the founders were saying, are given to man by God. Man can neither grant nor deny these freedoms. Elon Musk, not a Christian, and no, he wasn't saved in the interview with the guys from the Babylon Bee. In fact, they likely did more harm than good, to be honest. He's a man that truly believes man will destroy this planet. He's looking for ways to help prolong the planet and to give us a new home somewhere out there. That's his belief. He's following his beliefs. The government is not pushing electric cars to save the planet. They're just not. They no more care about this planet or their children or their grandchildren than they care about you or me. They're concerned with power and control, the restriction of liberty and freedom, because deep down, they hate freedom. They hate that a so-called God has more authority than they have, and whether or not they realize, recognize, or are willing to admit it, they want to be God, and they'll do whatever they can to get even a hair closer to being God if that means destroying capitalism, destroying freedom, destroying the car industry, or ironically destroying the planet. Well, so be it. Now you may be saying, that sounds pretty cynical. (laughs) And I agree with you. I really do. It, It does. But you tell me, why are they doing this? Do you think they're just that stupid and short sighted? Does that make sense? Do you really think they care about you? String all their words and actions together. Does that seem right? Like I said, I hope I'm wrong, but logically, laying out the dominoes that must fall when putting in place destructive mandates, I don't know where else they could possibly be going with this. So, the question is, why don't I just go mad thinking this way? Well, because God's in charge. They may want his throne, but I'm just not really concerned with any of our little self-absorbed politicians taking it from him. As for me, I know where my home is. As Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. This life is over in a flash, and the older I get, the more I realize how short this life actually is. Then that's okay. When it's over, it's over. And no matter how it ends, I end up at the same place. And when I get there, I won't give how I got there a second thought. I pray that you have the same assurance. But while I'm on this earth, I don't want to just sit on my hands while the world burns. And I don't want to sit on my faith while people die. So in my own small ways, in my own small corner, I do what I can. If you're saved, let me encourage you, don't sit on your hands or your faith. If you're alive and you're able, do what you can to affect your small corner of the world, and especially those that are in it. 
Well, this is a doozy. Normally, I try to come up with some sort of lead-in to the article, but I'll be honest, I don't think I can come up with a lead-in anywhere near as good as the headline. And then the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, comes to mind, as in doing some research, I could veer off in all sorts of directions. I shall endeavor to focus, but I'll warn you up front, focusing and endeavoring may not be my greatest strength. So, without further ado... From Breitbart.com, headline, World's First Lesbian Bishop Calls for Church to Remove Crosses to Install Muslim Prayer Space. (laughs) Okay, a lot to take in there. This would be the equivalent of some sort of uh, freak show, county carnival, world record onion. The layers that we'll be peeling back here. Let's look at the specifics and then, then we'll go places from there. The church in question is the Church of Sweden per the Wikipedia article on this, so you know it's accurate. I mean, actually, it probably is, but this is an evangelical Lutheran national church in Sweden with nearly 5.8 million members. It's the largest Christian denomination in Sweden, it's the largest Lutheran denomination in Europe, and it's the third largest Lutheran denomination in the world. They are considered high church, as they have priests, vestments, they take mass, as well as maintaining the historical episcopate, and they claim apostolic succession. Without going into all that, we basically call them kind of an old-timey Lutheran church, somewhat orthodox along the lines of Catholicism. That's a good enough generalization. This appears to be a very heavily democratic type of denomination. Uh, Sweden is divided into dioceses and further broken down from there. Each diocese has its own bishop, which is an elected position, serves as the chairman for those dioceses. The specific church in question is in Stockholm's eastern dockyards and is called the Siemens Mission Church. This church is apparently not beholden to the bishop as it's an independent church that operates outside of the diocese, however that works. The bishop in question is one Eva Brun. This is the, quote, world's first openly lesbian bishop, apparently elected in 2009. She, quote, has a young son with her wife and fellow lesbian priest, Gunilla Linden. Regarding her request, Ms. Brun, as I'm not going to be using any sort of religious title for many reasons for her, met with the priest of the church earlier this year and asked him what he would do if a ship came into port and the crew weren't Christian but wanted to pray in his church. Her suggestion, based on the lunacy of her question, probably makes sense, you know, in that lunatic context. Clearly, he should remove the crosses. In fact, all Christian symbols and put markings in the church that denote the direction to Mecca, obviously to make the Muslim population welcome in the Christian church. Ms. Brun further went on to categorize Muslim guests to the Christian church as angels, and said that if the priest were to follow her advice, it's fine. It doesn't make him, quote, any less a defender of the faith. In fact, she went on to make the claim that for him to not do it would make him, quote, stingy towards people of other faiths. Besides, hospitals and airports, they have prayer rooms for various faiths, and this is just a dockyard church, so doing this would bring it up to speed. Shockingly, and uh, I only say that half tongue-in-cheek, there have been some protests. Now, the priest of the church isn't too worried about what Brune requested. Not really his problem, what she wants. It's not her church. 
Father Patrick Peterson, a priest of a church in the same parish, did express a little surprise that uh, Brun didn't know the difference between an airport prayer room and a church. He stated that her single point was hospitality, but she didn't discuss the theological, ecclesiological, pastoral, and working issues like removing crucifixes that are screwed to the walls and moving out heavy items such as baptismal fonts. And since she showed no interest in discussing these points, it kind of shut the discussion down altogether. The director of the church in question, Kiki Vetterberg, said that she has no problem with other faiths coming into the church to pray. But just as she wouldn't expect a mosque to remove their symbols if she made the choice to walk in there, she won't be taking down the symbols in their church either. Let's address Ms. Brun, the faux bishop, for a moment. Now, personally, per the upbringing I had, I don't really care about the hierarchy of these so-called high churches. I think it's a bunch of nonsense, as these positions aren't justifiable or defensible biblically. These are made up, governmental offices, in my opinion, just to prop themselves up as, you know, something special. Beyond that, as a woman, Ms. Brun is not allowed to hold this office. Paul was very clear in his first letter to Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now, with all scripture, there is a context, there is a principle, there is an application. Although there is a very specific context to this verse, the principle and the application holds true today. Ms. Brun is not in a legitimate position based on that verse alone. She's not a bishop as that's an authoritative position in the church over men, and that's not allowed. You can argue that point if you'd like. I suggest you take it up with Paul, as I didn't write it. But to be honest, that's maybe one of the lesser of my concerns. I've covered this before, but the reality is, this woman isn't a follower or a child of God, period. She is living in a lesbian relationship, in open, unrepentant sin, and by definition, she cannot be saved. She is a hellbound pagan at this moment, in a position of authority in a Bible-professing denomination. What worries me more is that this is an elected position, elected by priests, deacons, and laity, as I do for many so-called Christian or Protestant denominations or sects, I fear for those caught up in this Antichrist church. And before you get up in arms about me calling it Antichrist, I think Ken Ham expresses it best, there are only two religions in this world, God's word and man's word. The reality is that either you're for Christ or you are Antichrist. And this is how I can accurately call this church Antichrist. The leadership those teaching the laity, apparently have no fear of God. And as they have no regard for his law, neither do they love God. Now, before we stand back and condemn these crazy Swedes, I'm part Swedish, I can call them that, this is not solely an issue, you know, over there. If you look up Interfaith Church on your favorite, definitely not monitored or by a search engine that's definitely not logging everything you type, say, think, or look at, you'll find a buttload of results. Now, I don't know how big of a butt or what that actually means. Let's just say you'll find a lot of results. The concept of having a church building that serves all faiths is nothing new, although it is, of course, recent with regard to religion. Back in 2019, Pope Francis met with the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Ahmed Mohammed Ahmed Al-Tayyib in Abu Dhabi, and signed the Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and Living Together. 
And doesn't that just roll right off the tongue? It's like sweet molasses. But seriously, though, it sounds like something I'd write out trying to think of that word. You know, that word, the one that means living together. Oh, oh, forget it. I'll just type out living together for now. I'll highlight it. I'll come back to it when my brain wants to work. Right? Doesn't it sound like that? A document on human fraternity for world peace and uh, uh, living together. Anyway, this document does something, something about coming together and recognizing both religions as religions of peace or something. I'll be honest, I don't really care. The document created the one world religion. Oh, (laughs) sorry, that's not right yet. It created the higher committee of human fraternity. Now, at the location they signed this document, a building is under construction called the Abrahamic Family House. This will not be a single building, but will be a close-quartered complex housing a Christian church, a Muslim mosque, and a Jewish synagogue. So, I mean, you know, that's, uh, that's just, that's just fine. Doing a little more digging, we have the Multi-Faith Neighbors Network. Now, this one, I'm not positive as I didn't deeply research this, but it appears to be getting dangerously close to being a Unitarian or Universalist type of group. They're a nationwide collaboration of various faiths. They come together to learn from each other in order to form closer-knit communities and a better society. Their executive committee consists of male pastors, okay, a female pastor, oh, whoops, male rabbis, yeah, well, I mean, sort of, as Christians can learn some traditional and historical context of the Old Testament, a female rabbi, <laughs> did you know those existed? I'm actually a little shocked on that one, a Catholic nun, we're, we're dipping our toe into some dangerous waters here, and a couple male imams, <laughs> uh-oh, spaghetti Curiously absent, though, is a female imam. I'm sure they're probably just culling through the stacks of potential candidates for that position. Uh, Let me be clear. I have no problem with working together with other religions and faiths on very specific societal-type issues. For instance, I'll stand shoulder-to-shoulder with a Catholic against abortion. I'll work with a Jew or a Muslim in a political campaign to get the best possible person for the job elected. At the same time, there will need to be a very clear delineation of beliefs. In other words, I'm not partnering up with anyone outside or even inside Protestantism for vacation Bible school if they hold beliefs counter to what the Bible says. I'm not going to compromise my beliefs to get a good enough moderate candidate elected, who's, you know, better than the lefty, just to partner up with someone. And I generally have no problem with a rabbi or a practicing Jewish scholar helping, you know, us Protestants with understanding history, culture, context. But there's a limit. They can give the old covenant understanding and then they need to stop as the new covenant has revealed what was hidden in the old, something that they would not ascribe to. This group probably does some good things in the community. But personally, I think the quicksand they're walking on it may not be worth the risk. Now, you may still say that these are, you know, kind of fringy groups, right? Different faith traditions. This doesn't really affect us. You know, the mainstream evangelicals, right? Well, have you ever heard of a small country preacher named Billy Graham? Now, look, I would not question Graham's salvation. I would never question his heart to get the lost saved or his love for God, and I'm not trying to cast aspersions on his character. That's not what I'm doing here. But 
in reality, he had his fair share of errors. One of those errors happened to be something that happened a few years before he died when he declared that Mormonism is mainstream evangelical and is no longer considered a cult, at least by him. Okay, well, by definition, if you believe the Bible, no, Mormonism is in fact a cult. Graham was wrong. By making this declaration, who knows what damage he's done. How about good old purpose-driven life Rick Warren? Although not the creator of the seeker-sensitive movement, that falls on Robert Schuller, Rick Warren was one of the biggest names of the past few generations of churchgoers and a huge proponent of the seeker-sensitive philosophy. What is the seeker-sensitive movement, you may ask? Well, if I had to summarize it down, it's essentially a push to get everybody in the door and butts in the seats, by very nearly any means necessary. The direction of this movement was driven by polling the population at large, especially the unsaved, to see what it would take to get them into the church. Not surprisingly, the surveys resulted in essentially the statement of, make church more like the world. Now, not more applicable to the world. Not addressing the issues of the world. No, no, no. More like. You know, I like my local bar because it has loud music and free snacks. and My buddies are there. It's fun. There's no pressure. I can be who I am dress how I like, speak how I want, and not be judged. Make church more like that, and I'll think about coming. And this is exactly what large, very popular churches are doing, and what many, many churches around the country and in your community that look up to the high-dollar, highly successful Big Brother churches and try their best to emulate them. Where do you think the idea of a cafe came from? Where do you think rock concerts complete with lights, lasers, and dry ice posing as worship music came from? Where do you think pastors in ripped skinny jeans came from? Where do you think Night at the Movies sermon series came from? And the list goes on. In fact, in 2011, Rick Warren assembled a team to come up with a plan for the church to improve the health of the church, which they called the Daniel Plan. You may remember this from the diet plan part of this. You know, eat vegetables, lose weight, which is the exact opposite of what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did when they ate their veggies, right? Warren's dream team was made up of three doctors that were originally helping him lose weight. You know, so they must be, they must be good. A professing Christian, a Jew, and Dr. Oz, a mystical kind of Muslim. Warren is also a big proponent of removing religious symbols from churches as they can make the unsaved masses feel uncomfortable. And remember, butts in the seats. That's the goal. And to bring this full circle to where we started, have you looked at these churches? Look at churches around your area. Look at the outside. Look at the inside. Look at the sanctuary. You could cut your hand off and count all of the crosses you see on your remaining zero fingers. Tell me how many crosses you see. Just drive around and look. You'll see crowns, you'll see rivers, trees, valleys, hillsides, sunrises or sets, who knows, and just about infinity other symbols. But where are the crosses? If the buildings didn't say church on the sign somewhere, and not all of them do, would anyone know that that warehouse-style building was a church? I think there's some importance to that. I found an article on GodTV.com. And look, I'm not vouching for the site. I have no idea who they are, but the article was pretty solid. It was entitled, Why Are Churches Removing the Cross? 
I'm not going to read the article here. I'm not going to review the whole thing here. It's a good read. Uh, but the author states her thoughts when she looks at the cross. She says she sees guilt, you know, the guilt of the world. She sees God's hatred of sin, God's unfathomable love. She sees victory. She sees love and life, peace and promise, rest and hope. Now, see, the world likes the victory, the love, the peace, the hope. But they don't have room for hatred of sin, for guilt, ugh, for the substitutionary sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. All of that is, you know, kind of kind of yucky feeling. And as we know, church is supposed to be happy and good feeling and uplifting and lovey-dovey. Now, she asked a great question, and, and I'm going to encourage you to think about this. Her question was this. What if you showed up to the church on Sunday morning and the power was out? On that morning, there will be no slides, no orchestra, no microphones, no overheads, no computerized videos, no coffee, no nothing. Nothing but a preacher and his message. Would there still be a church that morning? Could there still be church that morning? That's a great question. Now, on a personal level, my small church got that opportunity, sort of, about a year ago. One of the transformers that feeds power to the church blew. A good chunk of our sanctuary was without power. We reverted back to the hymnals. We generally sing hymns, but we put the words on the screen, mostly just for convenience. Our pianist played on the actual piano rather than the clavinova. We run a small live stream, which is generally watched by those who can't make it in or who were still concerned for COVID-related reasons at that time. And we were able to run that stream, put a little bit of lighting up toward the pulpit so the few that you know were watching weren't staring at just kind of a dark shape up there delivering a message. And we could have easily said, we'd just try again next week. We didn't have to try to run the live stream, but we improvised. We did what we could to reach those that couldn't be there. And in person, we carried on. And it was great. Well, so what should we take from this? The Bible is very clear that we are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. As there are only two types of people in the world, true believers in the accuracy of the Bible, thus true believers in God and Jesus, etc., and then there are unbelievers, which encompasses all the other religions and non-religions in the world. If we partner with an unbeliever, we are yoking ourselves with them. In some cases, the yoke is very loose, maybe not even truly yoked. We must be very discerning as to how we partner with unbelievers and those that profess belief with their mouth but clearly do not believe. Next, the church is not for the lost. Now, this statement generally invokes an immediate reaction from at least half of those that hear it. They are welcome to come in. They are welcome to listen. They're welcome to participate in the general activities of worship. We need to understand, though, that as the Bible says, unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, if the church is at least truly teaching and preaching accurately from the Bible, the lost will find it to be foolishness. The church is not called to be a welcoming home for the lost, where they can feel comfortable coming in and leaving with no effect on their lives or their consciences, their hearts. If they're coming in and out of a judgment-free zone, uh, they haven't attended a church. And they are absolutely not to be permitted to volunteer, to teach, to hold any position, or to have any say in the workings of the church if they're lost. If your church feels they must cater to the lost, that the mission is to get the lost in the doors so the pastor can talk at them for 15 minutes, giving them three ways to improve your marriage, or five lessons to teach your kids, or one simple step to get more money, you know, so you can tithe on it, so your seed of faith, 
you may possibly be attending a self-help seminar or a TED Talk, but you're not attending a church. No, no, no. Church is there for the saints. And this is our time. This is a safe place for us to come, be who we are, be open, real, and honest. It's a place for us to learn, to grow, so we can reach the lost and then invite them, when the time is right, to the church as the Holy Spirit is regenerating their heart, leading eventually to their repentance and belief, put simply, their day of salvation. Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, wrapping up the letter, knowing that his time on this earth was drawing closer and closer to the end, said this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This has got to be the strongest charge ever given. I mean, invoking God and Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead and as the triumphant king upon his return and by his kingdom. Wow. How many pastors, how many church leaders are actually heeding this charge? This alleged faux bishop in Sweden is not uncommon. She may be a somewhat shocking, somewhat extreme example for now, but she's nothing more than another teacher that people have accumulated to present them a gospel that they want to hear not the one in the Bible. Unfortunately, this is occurring at an already alarming, yet increasing pace all around the world. Now, I'm not an advocate for abandoning your church because of you know, disagreements, because of hard times, because of a variety of reasons, but I would implore you, if anything I mentioned here struck a chord with you, take a close look at your church. Look at the structure. Weigh it against the Bible. If you're not in a biblical church, it's time to get out. Find one that will no longer scratch your itching ears, but rather feed your soul and mind, convict your conscience, call you to repentance, and one that presents the real gospel. If you're a pastor, an elder, a teacher, a deacon, or any level of authority in the church, are you heeding the charge? Are you in a church that's heeding the charge? It's time to take this seriously. Satan is out to destroy the church, and he'll succeed at least as far as God allows him to. Don't be someone that falls for his lies. Stand on the authority of the Word of God, not on the sinking sands of man. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.